We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know, and sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Lanto. Don Palumbo. Hi, it's nice to be back. It yeah. Feels, feels like it's been a while. It's good to see you again. Yeah. It was a while since the last time I saw you. Yeah. I know I yeah. saw you earlier today when yeah. we got in the car yeah, we, and drove here. we drove here together, yeah. But it was a long time since then, and tonight we are back at Fat Fish Brewing in the Queen City of the Prairies. Did you guys, did you guys know you all were called the Queen City of the Prairies? Everybody, 100%, 100% of the audience. I don't believe you. Some of y'all were failing that pop quiz. I guarantee it. But it's, it's our first show here in, I don't know, like two years? Uh, a year and a half. Year and a half. You know what we say to that? February 9th, actually, was the last time here. Oh, February 9th mm -hmm. last year. Okay. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you know what we say to that? Damn glad to be here. Yeah. Cheers it's to good. all of you it's, for being here It's good with to us. be back. Thank you. Cheers to Dickinson. Cheers to you, Don Palumbo. It's also cheers to a beautiful day because most of us have sent our shit-ass kids back to school this week. Yeah. Today was the first day of school, I think, here, right? First, no? First day Tomorrow. of school, back oh. in Minot. Well, congratulations. You guys tomorrow. got a lot to look yeah. forward to. It's great. So, uh, I don't know. Anyone up for day drinking and a trip to Target? <laughs> no, That's what I me? did. <laughs> so, um, so thanks for being here and thanks for sending your kids back to school. And thank you to everyone who has taken a little bit of time out of their busy life to rate and review Midwest Murder on iTunes. The comments really help people recognize whether or not they want to hear the show. Sometimes they pump our tires. Sometimes they deflate the tires. And either way, we appreciate people who we give do. us a, give us a little bit of moment of their time. So yeah. Don, I'm kind of curious, what are people saying about Midwest Murder these days? Well, H7 Angus, H7 Angus, gave us five stars, the best. I was never a huge podcast listener until I realized that Dateline was not only a show I had on DVR Record, but also a podcast. I was recommended to Midwest Murder, and my curiosity got the best of my North Dakota heart. Guys, I've binge listened to MWN. Can't stop, won't stop. The banter is just showing the friendship Jonah and Don have. When you guys are explaining, getting into de into the depth of each episode, I feel involved. Sketchy, but so awesome. This podcast is an absolute game changer for murder podcasts. Number one in my book. Don, stay bossy. Jonah, keep being intrigued. Came for the Midwest, <laughs> stayed for the murder. P.S. I can't believe you named the podcast, quote, O-1-E. O-1-E. That's how yeah. you spell one in the that world is, of Don Palumbo, for I was those trying who don't to make, know. I was trying to make a point, and it was... I, uh, we were in Grand Forks, I can picture it, and I think it was the Michelle Martinko case, and I was trying to make a point that there was just only one DNA match, and as soon as I'm, I'm reading it, I'm like spelling out one, 
and it comes out of my mouth and it's like you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube and it was like o one e and i'm like oh my gosh there i just did that that's that's me i uh i, I love this yeah. review i feel i, I feel kind of seen the yeah. our banter is just the friendship you know yeah. flinging it back at each other and of course the don's bossiness and and my curiosity it's a great combination <laughs> thank you summer whitney 88 gave us five stars Small word creeps, well done storytelling. A friend of mine recommended this podcast to me a while ago. I finally got around to listening to it and I was instantly hooked. You know it's the Midwest when you're listening to these stories and find yourself with personal and professional connections to several people in several of the cases. As a counselor for children, I've worked with kids connected to one of the murder stories. One of the murder victims is my childhood best friend's aunt and I interned under counselor mentioned in another episode. Small world creeps, but well done storytelling. Can't wait for the new episode each week. Please come back to Dickinson so I can catch a live show. Here we are. Summer and Whitney, you with us? And that, yay! Right on. Well, thanks that's for the so review. Exciting. That doesn't happen very that, often. That has happened that's one a, other time, yeah. so that's lovely. Second time yeah. in Midwest murder history. That is really cool. Again, thanks for taking the time yeah. to, to hop on iTunes amazing, and, and do that. Amazing things for us, yeah. Yeah. I like it. I also like some of the new merch we've added, and you can get that at www.toomanyshirts.com slash Midwest hyphen murder. We're working with a local company, so mm -hmm. those who appreciate supporting local, all of our merch is produced locally and uh, distributed locally by a company in Minot, North Dakota, where yeah. our podcast is also produced. And she's they're, they're pretty dang quick. And if, you, um, if you're here tonight in the audience, we have a QR code that'll take you directly there. Yeah. We don't have a lot with us this evening, but anything you'd like to get, we've easy access, QR code, please do scan. We do have some. We do have, we have some. The, the improper use of the word literally drives me figuratively insane. Yeah. So when I say we literally have three sweatshirts and one t-shirt, I mean that literally. So yeah, we have, we have a few things. It's quite literal double. <laughs> this show is also brought to you in part by Midwest Memoirs. And listen, Midwest Memoirs is all about capturing the stories of your family. Do you love to hear the stories of your family from your grandma, your uncle, and do you want to be able to hear them forever? It's like a podcast you can listen to with future generations. Then you need to contact Midwest Memoirs because we're here to ensure those stories and the voices who tell them are never forgotten. Imagine hiring professionals to conduct a sort of 60 minutes like interview that is the story of your grandma's life, your father's life, your mother, anybody that you care for. In a nutshell, that's what Midwest Memoirs is doing. And I've, it's really special. And Don, I sleep better at night knowing that my grandma Helen's stories will not be forgotten. It's pretty great. If that interests you, if, if that sounds special to you, you can find Midwest Memoirs on Facebook and Instagram and we'll help you get that taken care of. It is, I, I think it's, it's safe to say that I'm the, the less emotional of the two of us. And, uh, I've. She's not a robot. I'm not a robot, but. I checked. I, I have, each interview that we've done, I have gotten teary eyed at some point and I leave just so happy that somebody gets to hear these stories. So it's, it's a pleasure to, to do them. I, I love it. It's great. In this episode of Midwest Murder, we're heading back to 1981, a year when you could purchase a sweet-ass 19-inch color TV for the low, low price of $399.95. You can get like a 70-inch <laughs> now. So ridiculous. <laughs> that's crazy. I don't know if that's good or bad that you can get 70 inches for 400 bucks these days. Either way. Lady Diana married Charles, Prince of Wales. 
More than 600,000 people packed the streets hoping to catch a glimpse. Another 750,000 watched the event on their tiny, overpriced RCA television. 1981 was the first time Americans voted to elevate an actor-slash-celebrity to become leader of the free world. Cheech and Chong released their third film, Nice Dreams. It was the 10th highest-grossing film at the box office that year. So what really blew my mind was, about yeah, was that... Was it a slow movie for films or, or a slow year for films? No, it was a great year for films. Cheech and Chong were just rocking it. I don't know. <laughs> Smoking it, maybe. I don't know. So what blew my mind, Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back, which many consider to be the best Star Wars film, yeah. was the 36th highest grossing movie that year. What? Cheech and Chong number really? 10. Yes. So Cheech and Chong 1981. Empire yes. Strikes Back. Absolutely. Raiders huh. of the Lost Ark was number one, if uh, anybody is curious about that. In 1981, several memorable, possibly legendary bands were formed, including The Beastie Boys, Metallica, Run DMC, Motley Crue, The Bangles, Pantera, Soul Asylum, The Pet Shop Boys, and Tears for Fears. Wow. Kind of a, a classic year. Yeah. I mean, looking not, back, not, all... not bad. Several Hall of Famers in there. Hmm. Pope, many remember, of course, Pope John Paul II and Ronald Reagan surviving their assassination attempts, but most people probably forget Anwar Sadat, the president of Egypt, did not survive the assassination attempt on his life. The popular arcade game Donkey Kong was released by Nintendo. This is the pre-console era. And here's an interesting tidbit about that. When Donkey Kong came out, the character you play, who we now know as Mario, was simply called Jumpman back then because Mario didn't exist yet. Interesting. I did not know that. Cartoons were becoming increasingly more relevant, and the Smurfs made its television debut. It was the most popular cartoon that year. And do you remember the glory of Saturday morning cartoons? I do. It was my favorite. I would wake up way earlier than my parents, or my dad was already at work or whatever, and I'd be chilling there with a bowl of cereal, maybe two bowls of cereal, because cereal because no one was awake to tell me I couldn't, and watched, I mean, I watched the shit out of TV, like cartoons whatever was on like that's what that's, that was our cartoons that was the only cartoon time we got i'm going to age myself but these kids they have no freaking clue these days no clue man here's the saturday morning cartoon lineup from nbc it ran from 7 30 a.m to just after lunch at 12 30 the flintstones the smurfs shazam space ghost spider-man the daffy and speedy show with bullwinkle closing it down wild in 1981, American Airlines became the first company to introduce frequent flyer miles. And Who knew get, that 40 some years later that we'd still be collecting miles, but nickel and diming and losing space every step every, of the every way, every flight we take, but that's fine. And get this General Mills introduced the world to microwavable popcorn. Act one. It actually had to be refrigerated because it contained real butter. So is that why they have Act 2 now? Of course. It came out in 84. So Made like 53 million bucks in the first two years. So microwavable popcorn is the same age that, as you are. Yeah, indeed. Interesting. I'd like to think I, I've, I've been refrigerated the whole time, so I <laughs> aged better. Sure. Okay. Quote, My mom said I could strangle her. 
or use my crossbow. It was up to me. That's from John Butch Whitty, who was just 14 years old when his mother offered him that choice. But this was a seed of violence planted long ago, a fertilization of bloodshed years in the making. Parenthood is such a massively important responsibility. To be in charge of how a life grows is so powerful, it's almost hard to verbally quantify. I'd like to think most of us are doing the best we can. We've accepted the weight of this responsibility and the varying roles that come with being a parent. You're also a role model, a listening ear, a cook, a maid, a source of inspiration or lack thereof, a taxi, a shoulder to cry on. You are discipline, you are judgment, and above all, you are influence. Ruby Payne, in A Framework for Understanding Poverty, which is one of the best books out there, in my opinion, actually says that we are doing the best that we can. It's just what we're capable of, basically. Ooh, that's a nice way to put it. I paraphrase, sure. but yeah. To borrow a quote from an old classic 90s film, quote, Mother is the name for God on the lips and hearts of all children. When a mother is evil and a father is violent, a child has little to no chance. It's a sad reality that not everyone wants to participate in the responsibility of parenthood, but there are much worse much darker parental choices than a lack of participation. We're not born with an understanding of good and evil, of love and hate. These are things that we are shown or taught. Whatever we learn from our parents as children is generally accepted as the normal way of life. If we raise our children with lies, cruelty, manipulation, and greed, those qualities will be normalized. And how long it takes before a kid realizes, whoa, my family's messed up? It might never happen. Some kids are so far gone, so caught in the evil spell of their parents that it's nearly impossible to reverse what's been ingrained. Trauma is inflicted far more easily than it is undone. This becomes particularly challenging when children are taught that outside figures of authority are not to be trusted. If mother is the name for God on the lips and hearts of all children, what happens when your mother is the devil and you've no father to protect your family? Future mother, Hilma Marie Witte, was born in 1948, and her upbringing was uncommon. Hilma's father was the proprietor of a nudist camp near Delray Beach, Florida. Everyone just walked around naked all the time. One former resident in her adult years said, quote, I never felt uncomfortable as a child. As a teenager, Hilma dropped her first name and just started going by Marie. Anyway, the nudist camp is where Marie met her future husband, Paul, a man 11 years her senior. Paul was originally from Michigan City, Indiana, and joined the Navy straight out of high school. Paul and Marie tied the knot in 1964. He was 27. She was 16. 
Most of Paul's family met Marie just barely before the wedding, and first impressions were underwhelming. Marie was a loud nobody with very few life skills, not at all what Paul's family imagined for him. Uh, did they imagine a child for him? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's a fair question. The the nudist camp, whatever, man. Do it. You do you. It's I. I think it's lovely that people have that freedom. Not not for me. <laughs> but where not I, but, for me. I don't but where I but where I draw the line is that she's a child. Right. He's twenty seven. She's a child. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Made and, and I don't know. It's there's something weird sometimes about the nature of family's expectations in a partner. You sure. Know? And and, yeah. and of course again nobody. And I don't know. Yeah. The the notion of a sixteen year old marrying a damn near thirty year old. I mean, I don't we, like it. We all want we all want our different times. Be damned. I don't like it, that. It, yeah. I that. I don't care that times have changed. That's still not okay then. Um, it feels. It's just icky. now we're now we're more aware of it, right? Like it's we are. Ugh, when we know better, we do better. But like that is, we should have known better then. Yes, seems think, obvious now. I think with expectations in a partner, I think as parents, we just want our kids to be happy, right? Like I just, I just want my kids to be happy. Yeah. And yeah. if they and not with a total pant load, right? I mean, right. You know? Yeah. Anyway, I could talk all day for that or about that, I guess. But following what seemed like a rather hasty marriage, the newlyweds eventually relocated to Indiana, choosing a quiet neighborhood in Beverly Shores, on the south coast of Lake Michigan. Paul Whitty, no longer with the Navy, picked up a job as a steel worker and volunteered his time as a firefighter. A few years later, in 1966. 18-year-old Marie, arguably still a child herself, gave birth to the first of two sons, Eric. Their second kid, John, whose nickname became Butch, arrived three years later. Paul and Marie had, we'll call it, different parenting styles. Things were pretty laid back at the nudist colony. Education was rather informal. So were meals and chores, and it seems like life in general. Marie's parents split up off and on. Her mother would drag the kids back to Pennsylvania for a while, and then go back to Florida, and it was a lot of flip flopping. It was very unstable. Whereas Paul held strongly to a strict, militaristic, religious, and disciplinary style. Paul's views for marriage were. Traditional in that he expected his wife to cook, clean, and care for the kids while he worked and provided. According to the family, Marie didn't keep a very tidy home. She was a, and she was a mediocre, lazy mother. The kitchen was always a mess of piling up dishes and dirty counters. There were clothes and other various items scattered across the floor. It felt cluttered and unkempt. The witty house was just a constant suffocating mess. And that never really changed, even as the kids got older. Um, if I, if I may, I don't like the word lazy. I really their I, words, not mine. I, no, I, okay, yeah, okay, I know yep. that. Yep, I know that. I'm not, I'm not coming at you yeah. this time. Um, but I think I, I struggle with that. Like that's, she was mediocre and lazy, but she also became an adult at 16, and there's some easily some trauma involved there. So. I think before we start 
pointing out somebody else's doorstep. Maybe we should clean off our own first and maybe be, you know, have a little patience and grace with people that, that bother. I hate that word that bothers the shit out of me. Yeah. I think I, I agree completely. And I think what really got the extended family and why it, it pissed them off more is like, okay, we understand when the kids are babies and you can't mm-hmm. keep up, but now you got two kids in school all the day, all day. And so they were, you know, in that era that pissed a lot of right. other women yeah. off. You well, know? and it's a- absolutely. And it, it's, if you have, if you only have 20% you can give and you can give a hundred percent of your 20%, you know, sometimes taking care of kids is all you got. Like, that's all you got the, the, the space for. But yeah. anyway, Paul Witte also favored the firstborn son, Eric, who was more of a sportsman than his younger brother, Butch. Butch became more of a mama's boy. And the focus of that favoritism was perhaps more curse than blessing as Eric eventually became the primary target of his father's abuse. The Witties were known in the neighborhood as a friendly, loving family. Paul took his son fishing and they went on camping trips. He was a hardworking man who respectfully volunteered his time to the community as a firefighter. He was a veteran. How could anyone possibly see the darkness brewing inside the Witty home? Evil can be anywhere, especially where we least expect it. Paul Witte was not a man to be questioned by his children, nor would he abide any smart-mouthed kids giving him smart-mouthed answers to his questions. In one instance, Eric was looking at fishing lures with his dad. He loved to fish with his father. When Paul told Eric it was time to put away the sleeping bags, Eric had the audacity to tell his dad, I'll do it when I'm done looking at these lures. Eric never saw his father's backhand coming. The blow struck him across the face and sent Eric reeling while Paul screamed at him about never questioning his orders. Paul Witte didn't do love taps when it was time to dole out punishment. He was a strong, large, and powerful man. To be clear, these violent outbursts weren't daily, but they were far from uncommon. It made for a lot of strange internal feelings for Eric. One day you're laughing with dad, camping, making these awesome great memories, catching fish. In those moments, it's easy to forget the bad things, if only temporarily. The good times just don't carry the same weight when they're interspersed with harsh beatings. Butch was never really expected to do anything. Paul invested efforts into his number one son. Eric got all the attention, but every year the violent discipline grew worse and failures came with increasingly more devastating consequences. There was a time Eric was assigned the task of vacuuming, and according to him... He picked up a screwdriver so he wouldn't vacuum over it, put it in his pocket. And then when he was done, he didn't notice that it had fell out of his pocket. So he told his dad, hey, I'm done vacuuming. When Paul came back to inspect inspect the task, he asked, did you vacuum the whole room? Yes. Oh, yeah? Well, what the hell is this? There's a screwdriver in the middle of the floor. How could you possibly have vacuumed this entire room when there's a screwdriver on the floor? Well, he seems reasonable for sure. Logical too. Definitely. And then he screams, what did I tell you about lying to me? Will you ever learn? 
Paul Witte took his belt off and beat young Eric from top to bottom. When his mother came into the room, she shrank away from the violence and, and left her son to the beating. Eric was regularly the target of his father's rage. There were times when his mother, Marie, intervened, but this would only result in her also getting beat by Paul. Over the years, Marie got hers too, but she actively avoided shielding her son from Paul's abuse. If he could be taking the ass-whooping instead of Marie, Marie Witte was fine with that, and she backed out. And I don't know how I... That's, that's, a, that's weird. I don't know. I don't know what I expected this lady and this whole situation sucks for them, but I don't know. You know, to be that kid looking at your mom just walking away from your dad beating you, I don't know. That's tough. Yeah, I think uh, she was probably psychologically... Um, beaten down, I guess, for lack of a better word. I'm not saying it's okay by right. any means, but it was probably a trauma response of some sort, you know? I mean, sure. It's also shitty, but I think it's tough to, it's tough to judge someone in that situation when, right. you're, when you're not in it, you know? Every time Eric got beat afterwards, Marie was there to soothe him, to comfort him, to give him advice, just do what he says, don't talk back. All she could do was encourage her son in how to avoid it. Eric felt as though it was always just him and his mother. In the third grade, Eric failed a spelling report, which required a parent's signature. Eric forged his dad's signature. The principal called his parents, his parents which sent Paul Witte into a theory. Not only did Eric fail his spelling test, which was pathetic, he lied and forged his father's signature. Paul Witte then proceeded to beat his son until he was breathless, until his arm got tired from swinging the belt. Eric, whose body was almost entirely covered in welts and bruises, could only lay there and cry where his father left and walked away from him. After some time, Marie returned home, found Eric, and ran him an ice bath. Eric, sitting in a tub of ice, rage and hate coursing through him. The parts of his body that aren't numb are screaming with pain. Here's a whisper from his mom. This has to stop. Wouldn't it just be better if he was dead? How much happier would we be? At that moment, in Eric's young, tormented life, it did kind of feel like things would be better if dad was dead. How, how old is he? At this point, he's in third grade. So that would make him, what, eight? eight Somewhere ish? in there, yeah. Eight-ish. And so when she was 18, she had him? Yep. I mean, so she's... She's 26 at this point. Yep, yep wow. mid-20s. I did correct mouth. math. Nice. Nice. Wow. That's, that's exciting. Mark it. Yeah. Anyway, I think, I mean, she's, she's 26. When Marie's, uh, when Eric's bath was finished, Marie doubled down on the idea, pulling her son aside for a, hu a hushed exchange. And she asks him, how can we stop him? At that moment... 
Well, and let me remind you, as I said, Eric is a third grader and his mother is asking him for ideas on how they should kill his dad. This was the moment that changed everything for Eric. Up to this point, it had always been about surviving his father's brutal onslaughts. Now, it became about stopping it. Him and his mother talked through multiple scenarios and options. Of all the ways that you could possibly kill him, what do you think is the best way? What would you need to do that? In- so she, she made him responsible for her emotions and her actions in that, in that moment. That was that pivotal moment. Absolutely. And I mean, she's I'm, planting like seeds she's, here. She's, she's not capable of, of a lot, right? She's likely endured a fair amount of abuse herself. Yes. And God only knows what else, right? Yep. So, and that alters the brain. We know that. I'm not giving her an excuse. It's a fair analysis. But, I mean, there's, there's obviously some mental health and, and you know, a, a, yeah. I mean, that's not good. I can't imagine where this is going to go. Actually, I can, but... In December of 1980, Margaret O'Donnell, Marie's mother, moved in with the family. It seemed like a happy-go-lucky atmosphere to everyone else. But that house was a melting pot. As Eric failed to come up with a plan of his own, Marie Witte initiated her own plan. John Witte took several vitamins and different medicines each day. Marie started replacing Paul's pills with replicas that were filled with rat poison, Valium, and anything else she could find that might kill him. One time, she was allegedly able to get him with arsenic, but not in high enough dosage, and it only resulted in Paul getting the shit so bad he went to the hospital. That's, that's a bad stomachache. <laughs> <laughs> that's real bad. <laughs> the dreadful anticipation of his father possibly keeling over from poison at any given moment gave Eric loads of anxiety. According to Eric, the reason he stood by his mother's side through all of this, he was taught to believe that you're supposed to protect, defend, and support your family against anybody and anything. The difficulty in that teaching for Eric was that his father Paul was the threat. There were so many times Eric would walk in and Marie would be spiking something, Paul's drinks or his food. She once poisoned a bowl of mashed potatoes and put them at the supper table. She'd mix rat poison into a glass and then tell Eric to deliver the poisoned beverage to his dad. Eric was terrified that his dad was going to find out, but almost equally as terrifying, what if Dad does actually die right here at the table. Each day brought new overwhelming anxiety. Will my dad beat me today, die by poisoning, or maybe he'll catch my mom trying to poison him and kill her? Let me tell you, worst family bingo card of all time. Although Marie's attempts to poison Paul Witte were persistent, they were also ineffective, at least in terms of actually killing her husband. He'd go through bouts of dizziness or feeling sick and weak, but Paul never once suspected his wife was tampering with his food and drink. According to Eric Witte, his mother sustained the effort to poison her husband 
for more than seven years. Seven years. Seven. So he likely. Seven years. This guy. So he he likely like developed a a, a tolerance to it. Possibly. You know, it's like an in, it's like in uh, Princess Bride, right? When you know he takes the poison. Could have done without an, that analogy, but I. But yeah, I mean, so you got to keep giving him more and more. She just kept doing it every mm-hmm. chance she got. He kept taking vitamins and it kept not working. It just kind of made the guy miserable and sleepy. And Did the abuse stop though? Or not, slow down? No, 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 no. By 1981, with each failure of poisoning, the pressure for Eric to take action was building, especially since he was getting older. Paul Whitty's abusive behavior wasn't the only contributor to a stressful household atmosphere. There was also a long history of alcoholism and some drug use, as well as financial problems. In spite of all this, there was enough apparent normalcy that nothing in the witty home caught the attention of authorities or concerned friends and neighbors, teachers. And people knew Paul was a stern man and that he was hard on his kids, but he seemed like a good enough parent and provider that nobody questioned anything. Well, and in 1981, nobody's going to question shit. Right. Yeah. What happens had, in yep. someone's house is it. That's... Yep. So yep. I... Yeah. Marie told Eric it was time to step up. No more stalling. You need to shoot your father. Oh. Marie said, I'm doing my part by trying to poison your dad. When well, not really. <laughs> not, you're not doing a good job of it. <laughs> it's so effed up. But yeah. Yes. Oh, you're doing your part? Yeah. Okay. Are you? So she tells him, when are you going to live up to your end of the bargain? Off and on, these conversations came up. Eventually, the pressure was too much for Eric. He felt he had to protect his mom and protect his brother. And that pressure from Marie came with threats. Marie Whitty once told Eric she'd take her own life if he didn't kill his dad. Now, if it wasn't already evident by her failed poisonings that Marie sucks at this, it will be abundantly apparent after you hear her plan for Eric to kill his dad. Are you ready for this brainchild? It's not to like switch his his birth control with anything, is it? (laughs) No. Okay. (laughs) Here's the brilliant master plan. Take your dad's gun, hide behind the front door, wait for him to come home, and then just shoot him and we'll say it was an accident. Oh, and don't worry. If the cops don't believe us, you won't be in very much trouble because you're a juvenile. Okay. Wow. Eric feeling as though he had no other choice, followed his mother's orders, conforming to her ambush-from-behind-the-door plan. Later that evening, Paul Whitty came staggering through the front door of his home, oblivious to his son, who was crouched behind the door, gun in hand. Only, when Paul so quickly came through the door and charged into the living room to take a nap, Eric froze with fear not moving until he heard his dad snoring on the couch. When Eric later explained to his mom how he just couldn't do it, 
Marie reassured and comforted her son, caressing his emotions in the direction she wanted them to flow. Tomorrow will be a better day. We'll do this. We'll do it together. But her patience with Eric's inaction was wearing thin. We've said it before, and I'll say it again. Divorce is easier than murder. And now I'll also add that it's a hell of a lot better than grooming your child into becoming a murderer. I'll have you know, Marie Witty considered divorcing her husband, but she wasn't satisfied with the divorce payout. Okay, before you said that, I was about, like before you started in there, I was about to say like, you know, Unless you're a victim of abuse, in which case it's probably hard, you know, to 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 make that. Sometimes murder is the only way out. Is what is sure. what a, a victim might feel, right? Yeah. Uh, but now, no, screw her. She's on her own. I'm I'm done. She's been she has been conditioned to be this way by her abusive husband. But and whatever that's, that's as far as I can go. I think there was some bizarre shit from the nudist colony too, but. Yeah, she realized Paul was worth more dead than alive and divorced. Not to mention, Paul was actually also threatening her with divorce. Marie's more immediate desire to have Paul killed was also likely exacerbated by the fact that Paul and Marie had taken out a loan to buy new furniture, but Marie, unbeknownst to Paul, took the money and pissed it away. Marie made up excuses about the furniture having delayed shipping, but Paul's anger grew with each passing day that his new couch didn't show up. What did she spend it on? I wish I, I could not find out what she spent the money on. Just random Just shit, pissed it away. Yeah. yeah. Like they're probably, I don't know, hoarder or if she was doing some drugs. I really dug and dug to try to There's find no what she was doing with the money. Sure. And I could not get an explanation anywhere. Finally. On December 1st, 1981, Marie Witte laid down the final ultimatum, commanding her oldest son to kill his father or she was leaving him and his brother to fend for themselves. And with that, Marie walked out the door without so much as a glance back. So he's probably like 15 at this time. Yes. So he's, oh boy. She seems cool. Oh, my. Eric was left to face a reality without his mom if he couldn't kill his dad. And still get the shit kicked out of him. Yeah. Yeah, mom's going to be gone. I'll still be getting the shit beat out of me. Or I, I kill my dad. Oh, my. She called him a few hours later to ask if it was done. It wasn't. Marie threatened to come home, take her stuff, and never return. It was then that Eric took his father's 357 revolver, feeling torn between a horrific choice or a world without the person who loved him most. Eric quietly approached his father who was asleep on the couch, raised the gun to the top of Paul's head and pulled the trigger. Years of trauma, abuse, confusion, grooming and manipulation led to this moment. Outside, Marie had just pulled back into the driveway. 
It seemed like she was there in an instant after the vile deed was done. Soothing, comforting, planning. Marie Witty had been grooming Eric for years. She believed, with no actual witnesses to the murder, it would be easy to say this was an accident. Marie took the gun from Eric, looked Paul over to ensure he was dead, and then immediately started telling Eric his script for the police. Have a story and stick to it. You found a gun, you wanted to show it to your father, and you tripped carrying it to him. The gun went off. That's it. Marie then called the police to report the accident. As soon as she hung up the phone, she continued hammering on Eric, rapidly talking the whole time, repeating the script to him as they waited for police. When law enforcement and emergency personnel arrived at the witty home, Paul lay dead on the couch amidst a messy, cluttered living room. There was stuff all over the floor. Marie was calm. Eric seemed in shock. Butch and Margaret were silent. There was an eerie calm, not at all the frantic atmosphere one might expect from a family whose patriarch had just been killed. It was probably relief. Of course. Marie placidly explained to police her son Eric found a gun and was carrying the weapon to his dad when he tripped and fell. The magnum discharged striking 44-year-old Paul Witte in the head. Given the state of the messy house, it wasn't a stretch of the imagination that someone could trip with a gun in their hand. But there was skepticism. Police weren't entirely convinced because Paul appeared to have been shot in the top of the head as if it were from a downward angle. Totally different from what one might expect if he were carrying a gun and tripped and fell with it. Well, and also, if he's this upstanding volunteer with the fire department, he likely knows law enforcement, and it's 1981, so there's likely a... Sure. You know, we're not going to question what happened to him. We're going to question, you know, or, as, or what, if he had done anything to... Deserve that like or what, earn it. No, or, I don't want to say deserve, or, but what his role was. Sure. Right? It's going to, they're going to come hard at someone. Marie wasn't home when it happened. Margaret was on the opposite end of the house in the dining room, and young Butch was in his bedroom. Nobody saw anything. Marie wouldn't let detectives speak with Eric at the house. When they tried to, she asked police, well, do I need a lawyer present for this? That raised a small alarm for investigators who already felt the scene was suspicious. When authorities finally left the witty home, Marie let Eric know how proud she was of him. Oh, boy. I wish the world could have seen your facial expression right there because, yeah. She, she verbally praised him. For, yes. She gave him a, a attaboy. I'm, yeah, I'm proud of you. Yeah. Oh, boy. Six days later, Eric was officially questioned by police at an attorney's office with his mother present. The story was clear. Eric discovered a gun he had never seen before, picked it up, and brought it to his dad because he wanted to learn about it. 
Eric told detectives, it's the first time I've ever seen this gun. I wanted to know how it worked. So I was bringing it to my dad who was asleep on the couch and I, I tripped on a rug and the gun went off. Detectives asked, why are you taking a loaded gun to your dad? I wanted to learn about it. Did you have the gun cocked? I don't think so. Detective Arland Boyd, who was heading up this case, was not convinced. It takes, in his mind, he knew it takes a lot of pressure and a lot of pull to fire a 357. So because of that, as well as the angle of the shot, he had a hard time believing it was an accidental discharge, but he stopped short of making accusations. Marie corroborates her son's story, but overall volunteered no additional information and refused an official statement. Marie wasn't home when it happened. She pulled into the driveway as the gun was going off. The autopsy finding does nothing to refute the story, and with no eyewitness testimony or evidence aside from the gun itself, Paul Whitty's death is ruled an accident by Indiana police. Even though detectives felt uncomfortable about this and that things just weren't right, they had to move on. Other cases demanded their attention. They figured Marie didn't stand to gain much from her husband's death. His insurance policy was $25,000, nothing crazy. Uh, and plus, she wasn't home when it happened, so she was never really viewed as a viable suspect. Not long after Paul's death, the neighborhood the Witties lived in was expanded into a national park area, forcing the family from their home. Margaret O'Donnell, who was living with them, moved in with a friend, that's Marie's mother. Marie, Eric, and Butch were offered a place to stay by Paul's stepmother, Elaine Witty, who was now 14 years a widow. She lived in the little town of Trail Creek. The 70-year-old, the 74-year-old grandma was so happy to welcome family into her home. Things went well at Elaine's house. She and Marie got along great. They hung out on the porch smoking cigarettes and sipping on Tom Collins. I don't want to speculate, but I just have a feeling this is not going to end well for Elaine. I'd like to say this was a fresh start, Dawn, but... Poor Elaine Witty had no idea the rotting evil she had invited into her home with a smile and open arms. From the outside looking in, the Witty family had settled into a new normal life and things were moving on. But Marie Witty's greed would never be satiated. Why this bitch couldn't just get a job is beyond me. Eric wanted to get the hell away from his mother and whatever bullshit she was planning next. So three years later, in 1984, Eric followed in his father's footsteps and joined the Navy once he graduated high school. He was stationed in San Diego after completing basic training. It was May of 1984 when police received a concerned citizen's call. A neighbor across the street from Elaine's house reported that he hadn't seen Elaine for several months. Usually, every year, he'd see her outside planting flowers and tending her yard at this time. But he hadn't seen her all spring, and he was worried. 
So police dispatch an officer to Elaine's home for a welfare check. It was Marie Witty who answers the door, explaining to the officer, Elaine went on an unextended vacation. She's traveling alone and we don't really know where she's at right now. But her social security checks are still getting cashed, I bet. Oh, Don, you're pretty quick on the uptake. The summer months went on and nobody saw Elaine or heard from her. Now, this set off more red flags, of course, because Elaine was pretty social. She was good about making phone calls to her friends and family and never missed sending birthday cards to her grandkids. It was in August of 1984 when police were again contacted, this time by Elaine's family, and it was after several birthday cards had not shown up. A sergeant was dispatched. He again spoke with Marie Witty, who assured the officer, Elaine's just fine. In fact, she was just down in San Diego visiting my son who's stationed there with the Navy. You ever hear the best lies contain a little dose of the truth? What Marie told the officer wasn't a complete lie. Parts of Elaine had already made it to San Diego. At that point, the tiny Trail Creek Police Department, which consisted of just four employees contacted the state police for help. And it was none other than Detective Arland Boyd who got the call, the same guy who investigated Paul Whitty's accidental murder. Of course, he remembered the Whitty family. And it's now been three months since the first missing persons report of Elaine Whitty. It was August 14, 1984, when state investigators paid Marie a surprise visit. Picture her shock when she answered the door and it was Detective Arlen Boyd saying, Told you I'd be back. Marie's statement to them was that Elaine took a bus for her travels, but she'd let them know if she heard from them. So investigators run the VIN number to Elaine's car and make a surprising discovery. Marie had recently sold the vehicle. Investigators then look at phone records and find... No long-distance calls coming into the home. Nothing whatsoever to substantiate the claim that Elaine was traveling. There was no way to track her through the bus system because those tickets aren't signed or registered, even though nobody had seen Elaine for months and police were concerned for her safety. There was no probable cause to indicate a crime was committed, which of course limits what they can actually do. Still, Detective Arlen Boyd and his team didn't give up. He returned to speak again with Marie Witty, only to, only to discover she's gone. So authorities contact Marie's mother, Margaret O'Donnell. Margaret said Marie and Butch went to California to visit Eric. So police subpoena Elaine's bank accounts and discover large withdrawals from the account beginning in January of 84 and continuing through May. Not, o- not only that, but somehow, Elaine was still managing to deposit her social security checks. They cross-referenced the signatures with older checks and noticed some discrepancies. Since social security funds are handled by the Treasury Department, this invites federal authorities into the investigation. Police are now convinced of foul play. Things take time. 
It was a few months later, on October 26, 1984, following months of pressure from Detective Arland Boyd, it was Marie Witte's mom, Margaret O'Donnell, who finally caved and revealed what happened to Elaine. Boyd always felt Margaret was a nice older lady who knew more than she was letting on. He was right. Margaret called the detective and told him flat out, Boyd, Elaine's dead. He said, okay, I'll be right over. The little old granny Margaret went on to tell detectives that Elaine was killed by the accidental discharge of a crossbow that Butch was carrying. I mean, what a coincidence. A cross, a crossbow? You heard that right. Like I didn't, and it wasn't until you said that that I remembered the quote um, that you said at the beginning. Of course. Um, So... Getting the Jonah bumps here. I have I have so many questions as to why a crossbow. I I mean, obviously can't go back to a gun, but a crossbow. A like freaking crossbow. That's okay. People De- are weird, man. Detective Boyd asked Margaret, "Well, where's the body?" Margaret said, "There is no body." Marie was afraid of another investigation like what Eric went through, so Marie and Butch cut up and dismembered Elaine. So this woman had her son cut up his grandma. Well, he first well, pinned first her to a bed her. with a crossbow. Yeah, killed her with a crossbow. Through the rib cage in the heart. Like a deer. That's yeah. nice. A yeah. lot of dignity there. A lot of yeah. compassion for human life. Um, and then... And I'm guessing Marie didn't get her hands dirty that much. Oh. I'm guessing I'm guessing Butch was the one that had to do most of it. We're going to find out. Oh. oh, okay. So this sets off a series of investigative events. Indiana detectives suspected Marie was in California near San Diego where Eric was stationed. They began monitoring banks in California for activity related to Elaine's social security checks. They also got a warrant to search Elaine's house. And investigators pulled out floorboards, wallboards, pipes in the sink, you name it. They found no blood or any significant evidence whatsoever in Elaine's house. Margaret told police her daughter was forging Elaine's signatures on the social security checks. Elaine's checks were still being deposited at her bank in Trail Creek and then subsequently transferred to California. Now, after they hightailed it somewhere in the summer to California, it was likely Margaret O'Donnell who was participating in the social security scam and forging the checks and making sure they got deposited. It was the first week of November 1984 when Indiana detectives flew to California in search of Marie and to pay a visit to Eric Witte, who was stationed at the naval base in San Diego. Initially, Eric stuck to the same story. Grandma Elaine was on vacation. But during the interview, it seems clear to detectives that Eric knows something. And that's when they confront him with Margaret's statement. On November 6th, Eric Witte crumbles and admits he got a frantic emergency call from his mother 
earlier that year while at basic training that his brother accidentally shot a crossbow that killed Grandma Elaine. His mom said, I need help. The body's downstairs in a freezer. It was two months before Eric was able to make it home from basic when he returned to Indiana. Marie brought him to the basement where a chained and padlocked upright freezer held the remains of Elaine Witte. What, is she going to bust out of it? Like, what? I mean, can you draw more attention to it? It's chained and padlocked. She's going to bust out of it. Yeah. No, I don't think so. I don't think so, Don, because when Marie opened the freezer door to show it to Eric, it was jam-packed with black garbage bags of grandma. Oh. Okay. Now, think of your lovely grandma, anybody oh. in the room, right? Can you, like, I'm, I'm having a very difficult time wrapping my brain around this one. It wow. is... It is, yeah. The next day, Eric, along with his friend Doug Menkel, who had actually traveled back from San Diego with him, either complicitly participated in taking some of Grandma back to Cali in ice chests, or Marie Witte snuck the ice chests into their car before they left and they had no idea. Either way, parts of Elaine Witte, the kind widowed grandmother ended up being tossed into the San Diego landfill. Eric said he never saw the body, and after that he just wanted to move on and forget about Indiana and his mother, but she kept calling as police kept pressuring her about Elaine's disappearance. The next day, on November 7th, 1984, police were alerted when one of Elaine's social security checks was cashed at a bank in Southern California, Marie and Butch are arrested shortly thereafter near the border of Mexico. When the two were taken in, Marie refused to cooperate. 15-year-old Butch, on the other hand, told police everything and then some. In his statement, Butch said Marie told him she stole money from Elaine and Elaine found out. Now... Elaine was going to kick them out of the house and put them on the street. She told her son, if you don't kill Elaine, we'll be homeless. Furthermore, the effort to kill Elaine had been going on for quite some time. Eric would later claim he left because he didn't want to be forced into killing Grandma, not thinking Marie had already been grooming his younger brother to the task. The average, the average uh, social security amount or social security check amount in 1981 was 332 dollars for women a month. That ain't much. In a, I mean, for in a, in a se- worth in killing a, for. In a separate note, right? For men, it was 427 dollars. I'll dig into that disparity later, um, but. That's what you're you're cashing in every month. Three hundred and thirty-two dollars. Yeah. That was worth. It's does it's, oh. it's not for her. It was it's some sort of weird greed. I don't know if it's like a poverty reaction from the nudist camp or whatever. Like there were reports that they were starving at that place. Like there was no supper. Sure. You know, it's not shit like it, that. Yeah. So I you it's, know I don't know. So Marie first tried to kill Elaine. 
by dosing her with sleeping pills and then opening the windows to her bedroom to allow the cold air in, hoping, hoping poor little Elaine would die naturally. Clearly, they didn't have Google in 84, but... <laughs> I, I mean, what? Sleeping pills and then, and then cold air? Like, yeah. Is that supposed to like... She figured, well, she's old. I give her sleeping pills, open the windows. She doesn't wake up. She'll die from cold air. <laughs> I, that was the that was uh that, that was the plan, Don Palumbo. I don't just. I know. I get. Why I don't know. You just duct tape her in front of an AC or something. Right. Right. Like, like I I get. I know. I get way too caught up in in the in the logistics of things. But I mean, for real, what what is opening the freaking window going to do for I, you? But I there's got to be some science. It's a to soft it, maybe? attempt. Be a soft attempt. She'd go in her sleep. You know, it's, it's a lot better nicer than, a, than better what, than a crossbow. Better than a freaking crossbow. So when that didn't work, Marie forced Butch into cooperating, demand he, demanding that he kill Elaine right now. Marie had already drugged her with Valium. She was fast asleep and wouldn't wake up. That's when Marie told her son, "You can use the crossbow or strangle her." The grisly work continued the next day when Butch and Marie used an electric chainsaw to begin dismembering the body, mostly Butch. See, I knew it. Gosh. The macabre efforts to deal with Elaine's body that later came out in court were horrific. Her teeth were pulled and crushed in a garbage disposal. Other smaller body parts and chunks of skin were dissolved using acid. The process took several months, and Butch, along with Marie, also utilized a hammer and a chisel, a microwave, and a deep fat fryer. No. I'm sorry. Hold on. They ate grandma too? Is that well, like, am I no, making that leap? No, 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 yeah, no, there was, they didn't, you know, they didn't recipe grandma, um, but they felt that was an easier way to dispose like, dis- dissolve and dispose it and take care of it. And according to Butch, grandma Margaret helped with the effort to get rid of grandma Elaine's body and there were pieces of 74-year-old Elaine Witte scattered all over Indiana. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my uh, gosh. That is, that's... This lady welcomed them into her home with open arms, gave this, gave frickin' Marie cigarettes, let her drink her booze, sleep in her house. Oh, oh boy. It's so twisted. The skull, hip bones, and... Other larger body pieces that couldn't be broken down were stored in the ice chests and disposed of in San Diego. Again, Eric Witte later claims he did not know the body parts were in his car. And he says when he arrived in San Diego, that's when he found them. So he put them in a storage locker before eventually panicking and then dumping the pieces in the San Diego landfill, which of course is massive. There was never any hope of finding those pieces of Elaine at the landfill. My gut feeling is he's telling the truth. 
I, I feel like, Fair. I mean, cause he tried to get the hell out of there. He so, did. You know, he, he wanted to avoid all of it. He saw what his yeah. mom was doing and he, he wanted to get out of there and yeah. he didn't get far enough. I don't know. He figured joining the military, but hmm. all three members of the witty family, as well as Margaret O'Donnell were charged with forgery. 15-year-old Butch and his 38-year-old mother are charged with Elaine's murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Margaret and Eric were charged with conspiracy and the Witties are extradited from California to Indiana. Doug Mankel, a friend of Eric's from the Navy who assisted in the dumping and transport of Elaine's body, was also charged with the assistance in the commission of disposing of murder evidence or something kind of like that. Roughly a week later, after being arrested and taken back to Indiana, Butch wanted to speak with detectives. And that's when Indiana police finally learned the truth of Paul Witte's death. Butch claims that he knew all along what happened. He also claims to be present when it happened. Eric disputes that fact. Either way, he tells him that, look, Eric, Eric killed dad. And it was in the moment that mom's car, he saw mom's car headlights in the driveway, he pulled the trigger. After police confront Eric with that, Eric mostly corroborates Butch's story, although he still claims that Butch was not physically there when he pulled the trigger. The Witty brothers ultimately agreed to testify against their mother in exchange for a plea deal. Following the confession, Eric and Marie were also charged with Paul's murder. The rest of the Witty family additionally learned the truth about what happened to Paul. At trial, several witnesses corroborate the tales of harsh physical and verbal abuse from the Witty family endured at the hands of Paul. Butch pleaded guilty, confessing to firing a 10-inch crossbow bolt into his grandmother's heart at the command of his mother. Butch said he partied with himself the night before by smoking marijuana and drinking vodka trying to choke down the decision of killing his grandma, which he didn't want to do. At the official hearing, Butch's attorney makes allegations that there were members of the Witty family who regularly participated in satanic rituals. Well, of course it's going to come up. It was the 80s. Everything was a satanic ritual. But the, he in, concluded... In, according, according to the... the it was, seriously, it is. 80s, everything, it was like... He just threw it in. Let me, let me throw this in there for must, good measure. It, there must I don't have know. been Satan worship. I couldn't find always. anything in the research that indicated any any of that. But literally at... Because at, it wasn't a trial for Butch. It was just the, mm-hmm. the official hearing. There's official statements, you know, recording of the record and stuff. He, he had his plea deal... But in his like speech, the lawyer said, yeah, a lot of, a lot of satanic rituals going on, but the deaths of Paul and Elaine were not, a, were not related to the devil worship. Marie testified in her own defense, denying her role as the kill commander, alleging that Paul, excuse me, alleging that Butch always had health and behavioral problems his whole life and that Butch killed Elaine because she wouldn't let him drink and smoke pot. Now, clearly there are some things we will never know the full truth of. But one thing that was consistent across all of these witnesses and all of these people was Paul's abusive habits. Marie also claimed that Paul threatened to kill her and the kids if she divorced him. She also testified Paul's abuse toward her extended beyond mental abuse and violence 
it extended into marital rape. Ooh. And that might be a subject we've never broached here on, on Midwest murder. And it's, and it's, and it's pretty dark, but this, this is what came out from her in trial. I mean, I don't want to believe anything that that woman has to say, but I think she was likely a, a victim of her environment, right? And, and maybe conditioned to turn into a monster, into the monster that she was because of that life that she endured starting at 16, Right. Yeah. If if mar- and if not earlier, if not earlier, right? I mean, so if if marital rape, I, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that that would be on the true, table, or yeah, right with her. Yeah. I mean, and the fact that I mean, marital rape wasn't always a crime either, right? Like that recently changed. Like prior, like I'm looking it up right now. Prior to the 1970s, marital rape was legal in every U.S. state. Ooh. Spousal rape was first acknowledged as a crime in, in a 1979 case. So think about that for a second. You're being raped often by your spouse, starting as a child, likely. I mean, you can see how she became who she was. Right. And again, that's not a justification. No, it's no, the, the not writings condoning on the wall. it. Yeah, not at all. In the end... The testimony of her children and her own mother were Marie Witte's undoing. In total, she had stolen $16,000 in savings from Elaine and cashed her social security check of $268 per month from January to October, as well as several of Elaine's railroad pension checks in the amount of $108 each. Her defense attorneys made a very feeble effort to blame Elaine's murder on an insane Dungeons and Dragons fantasy that consumed young Butch's mind, which is why he used a, quote, medieval crossbow to kill his grandma. Marie (laughs) faced separate trial. (laughs) Marie faced separate trials for each murderer and was convicted for murder twice in 30 days. Marie was found guilty after roughly a three-hour deliberation and ultimately sentenced to 90 years in prison for the murder of Elaine and a concurrent term of 50 years for the murder of Paul, as well as an additional 10 years for forging and cashing the checks. Eric and Butch each received a 20-year sentence for the reduced charge of volunteer voluntary manslaughter in exchange for their plea agreement and witness testimony. The boys spent 11 years in prison and were released in 1996. Following release, Butch eventually married and lived a pretty decent life until he passed away from health complications related to diabetes in 2009 at the age of 38. My. In 2017, Eric Witte eventually gave an interview in an episode of Evil Lives Here. The expression of his guilt and the torment he's faced in his life as a result of his actions was palpable in nearly every moment of the interview. Here are some additional details I encountered in my research. Now, the reason I'm including these at the end is because I found them on the dark corners of the internet as opposed to in newspapers, court documents, or books. There was a lot of harsh religious fundamentalism in the witty home and Paul Witte spent a fair amount of effort trying to quote save people through God 
The witty boys were shy and awkward, but considered very nice kids in the neighborhood. And there were even sleepovers at Elaine's house in the months after her death. While she was in the freezer. Yeah. Okay. Eric and Butch attended a very harsh religious school called Fairhaven Christian Academy. I also came across several posts on a blog where the investigation discovery episode was being discussed. There was a commenter who claimed to be Eric Witte. I found the commentary to be consistent with posts I found on other sites, as well as reviews for the book that came out in the 80s, which seems to get a lot of the truth incorrect. I'm going to share this statement that was made by what I believe is Eric Witte. Quote, My name is Eric, and I have a wife and three children. All of my kids have graduated from school and are gainfully employed. No teen pregnancies, no dropouts, no warrants or arrests. All are aware of my background. My family is a loving, productive, sharing family. After 11 years of incarceration, my chances of remaining out of prison were very small. With over 20 years out, I have managed to break the cycles of abuse and criminal behavior. As for my brother, he died several years ago due to diabetic complications. My, quote, mother is still incarcerated and with any luck will eventually reside in the prison cemetery. As for those who think they know what the motivations were, I wish you well. Very glad that you know more than the people who were actually involved. I can only envy such a gift for judgment. End quote. Wow. Additionally, wow. yeah, it's, it's, it's powerful. And I mean, it, seems to be there. And on that note, there was an email from this person. I emailed it. I didn't hear back. But um, my main question I wanted to learn in the email was, what the hell was Marie doing with all the money? I know there's a bunch of questions, but I just that was like the one thing that I never could really find an answer for. She got 25000 from Paul, 16000 from Elaine, plus all of the monthly payments. And I, I just, I, where's that money going? She wasn't living lavishly. I just, I, you know, that I didn't get. So there's, there's a secret there that just is rubbing at my mind that I don't know. Additionally, I, I encountered comments from several people who claimed to have served time with Butch and they all said he was a really good dude with deep regrets over what happened. Hilma Marie Witte found jailhouse Jesus and thrived in prison earning a bachelor's degree and becoming a lead figure in groups for incest survivors, domestic violence, anger management, and several others. She has petitioned for early release and been denied every time. Her earliest possible release is 2027. The, the part that gets me about her, right, is she brought her children into it. She made... She made them responsible for her emotions and her actions and made them do. She was the mastermind, but she made, yes. she, she made them do those things. Right. And so it's one thing if you're being, if you were being, you know, abused, raped, all of those things by your husband. And it's one thing if you take care of it, that's, that's not for me to decide. That's not I still that's not for me to say whether that's okay or not. But you brought your children into it. And then 
the mother-in-law really had nothing to do with it. I mean, if it was if it was a fundamentally Christian home, maybe and, and maybe a, right, but. That was something that Eric Witte said. It's a good observation, Don. It was something that Eric Witte said that he understood that his father was a a real imminent physical threat. It tragically, it made sense Mm -hmm. what, what they had to do to him at the time. But for him, when he was a kid and then suddenly, you know, you walk in into a room and your mom's spiking grandma's drink with you know what, that was, that was a point that that was a line. That was a line for yes, him. Yes, yeah. of course it was. Yeah. His father was a threat. Elaine wasn't a threat. She was a nice lady. You stole from her, and now she's mad at you, or whatever the case may be. And um, I, I would just take it maybe one small step further. She didn't bring her kids into this. She fucking groomed them to do it. She, she, this, yeah, you know, yeah. you you bring yeah. you bring your kids for me. Like bringing your kids in. That's like a, oh this the, hey this shit's hey help me your dad's in here. You're bringing them into sure. your violence. You're bringing them into your shit. She was developing them to do that for yeah. a and long I think time that is what i meant yeah that is I, what i meant by that but i i, so I, I want to make sure clear the grooming yeah. you know yeah, that that is was... i that's sick you know you hear of grooming someone into uh pedophilia you know mm-hmm. pedophiles grooming somebody into or grooming their victim grooming their mm-hmm. victim but yeah. or, or, or even a killer grooming their victim before they kill them but for a mom to groom her child to become her killer is a level yeah. of sick and twisted shit that i've never seen well, I don't, and like like i said though she she made them responsible for her yes. for her emotions and actions she so i, I it's ridiculous. I, this, wow. I, yeah, that's it. That's all I got. Sources for this episode, Witty versus State, the Supreme Court of Indiana, 1990 and 1987, the South Bend Tribune, the Associated Press article by Thomas P. Wyman in the Madison Courier, the Times Union newspaper, My Life of Crime, Evil Lives Here, Season 2, Episode 2, an investigation discovery series. Snapped, Season 31, Episode 19, Murderpedia, the Coffee with a Hermit blog. And our timeline from thepeopleofhistory.com, thenumbers.com, interestingfacts.com, Monet Media, and seriousseats.com. Midwest Murder is co-hosted by Don Palumbo and Jonah Lento, produced by the Good Talk Network, and this episode was written by me. Thank you so much, Dickinson. Thank you. Thank you.